Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. Welcome to episode 72. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder, and tonight will be a continuation from episode 71, where I continue to tell my story of the epic adventure I had with John Eames from episode 27 back in the early 2000s, one that led me to, I guess, where I am today in some ways, really getting bit by that travel bug and wanting to continuously search out and live in these third world places around the world, the more sort of colorful, if you will, maybe a little rougher, maybe a little bit less polished, but for me, where I genuinely see the most beauty in people and their character and the way they just appreciate life, even though they have so much less than I do. And so in this episode, we'll be starting from the border of Nepal and working our way through Nepal to India, and we'll see where we'll get. And with that said, I'd really like to take the time to read to you a letter that was sent to me recently. It was a group letter from Carlos Papelka in episode 67. And if you recall Carlos's story, he's been riding his bicycle for the last three years. And prior to that, he had actually been riding for four years. He had taken about a four-year hiatus from riding his bicycle. He has a PhD in genetics. He tries to build and make genetically superior plants to help famine in Africa. And I know there's very strong opinions out there on such things as GMOs, but he seemed like somebody who's really trying to do good for the world and kind of got burnt out and has been riding his bike for a lot of years and seen a lot of cool things. And when he got to the portion of India, he kind of skipped over it because he had an unfortunate experience in India one where he found himself kidnapped, actually, by a, by a splinter cell of the Maoist. Now, the Maoist are a communist group who are fighting the Nepalese government back from 96 to 2006. And they happened to be there when I was there, traveling with John in 2003. Now, the Maoists were not attacking tourists. They weren't interested in harming any tourists. They were more about trying to make changes for themselves and take control of their country or take control of their country in a way that they felt would benefit more people. And I did come in contact with Maoist over my travels and through Nepal. And although I never had an experience like I'll just describe or like I'll explain to you, but I did hear many stories like it. And it basically went like this. The Maoist would if you were going to take a trek through Nepal, this was back in the early 2000s, were very well connected in all the local tourist groups. And what would happen is they would get a list of all the tourists who were about to start their hike through the Himalayas. And it was not uncommon to get a knock at your door late one night before you're about to start your hike, a trek, Annapuna Trail, whatever it may be, and have a representative of the Maoist group explain to you that 
you had to give a donation to the cause. And this wasn't optional. This was a mandatory donation, but you would receive a receipt from this individual and you would get an explanation saying that if you encounter any of this so-called terrorist organization upon the trail, all you had to do was produce the receipt and you would be free to go. If you didn't have your receipt, they would then demand another donation to their cause and you'd be free to go. From the stories I heard, it was never violent. It was very clear that we just want your money and then want to continue on with our cause and let you continue on on your trek. And I did encounter many people who had this experience. And so the times that I had encountered Maoists were on bus rides through the, through the Himalayas where we would get pulled over by a gentleman standing on the side of the road with an AK and he would empty the bus of all the locals. We would get to stay on the bus. We didn't have to get off. They would search all the locals. They would search all of their luggage and then we would be on our way. Never a violent encounter. But in this next story, Carlos Papelka was bicycling through northern India when he was caught by a little sleeper cell or splinter cell of the Maoist, a very small group of sympathizers who felt that he might be an Indian spy, to which they kidnapped him. Carlos mentioned abuse. Um, he never said the word torture, but he was kept for a week, um, and it left a lasting impression on him, one that actually left him traumatized with a little bit of PTSD. And after having the conversation I did with him, he was kind enough to add me to his email list and gave me an update. And I wanted to read his nice letter because, you know, although that experience he had in India was negative, he talks about in this letter an amazing experience that he had in Iran. And for a lot of you out there listening, Iran is one of those countries that you wouldn't dare to go. It's a place that the U.S. government says Americans aren't allowed to go because there's terrorists there and there's people who want to harm you. And Carlos had a very different experience there. And so with that said, I'd like you to just listen to his letter, and then we'll get into my story of India. Because as you know, in many episodes, I have a very love-hate relationship with India, which I'll explain why later. But with that said, here is Carlos's letter to the group of an experience that he's had since our last discussion, episode 67, when he left Gigante to ride towards Panama. And it goes like this. Kind greetings from Panama, another milestone. It's been a very long journey to this point, and I am pleased to say that spirits remain high and the bike is in good shape. As you see on the picture taken just before crossing the bridge, from the Americas over the Panamanian Canal, there has been, a, there has been no fundamental change in the bike setup, and even my clothes seem the same as when I started three years ago. But actually, that is not true at least for the shirt I'm wearing, which originally was white. For those who have not heard the story, here it is in short. One day in Iran, at the Persian Gulf, I entered a little cycle shop to purchase some smuggled bike components. As I was haggling with the owner in the Iranian way, which is to try to pay the least you can, this old man stepped into the shop, grabbed a shirt, paid, and handed, oh, handed it over to me. I was confused. We didn't exchange a word. I may not even had had a chance to look him in the eyes. 
As he was leaving, I inquired who he was. He was the fruit juice seller on the street corner I had passed writing earlier. That's all I knew. That's all I ever learned about him. The shirt, it turned out, fitted like a second skin and is the best piece of garment I have ever had. The best color for sun. Best material to keep the sweat off, yet it keeps me warm. It dries in no time, and in spite of the photo, I can actually get it pretty clean each time I wear it. It is little, seemingly insignificant gestures like this that I have encountered everywhere on this long journey, regardless of the country, culture, or religion. There have been numerous people eager to lend a hand, go out of their way for this smelly stranger without any expectation in return, sometimes in a short moment together, sometimes with big actions. And it is these small unknown events that have kept me going for so long, sometimes quite literally. It's not the fabulous landscapes, although they have been many and beautiful. It's not the exotic foods or the unknown history along the way, although they too are an essential part of this trip. In the end, it is the people who have made me go on and further. By now the white shirt is worn and falling to pieces, but before that bridge, I wore it again. I had specially worn it back in the day as I crossed the border into the USA. In a small act of rebellion, while I swore that I had never in my life been to Iran, what wouldn't I give to tell the old man how much joy he has given me with that present each day for many years? As I paused at that important landmark of Panama, I felt compelled to not just remember each one of you and many more, but to also let you know that I think of you. It's you who in one way or another have touched my life during these years and kept pushing that bike further. I want to thank you for having been out there, and I carry you and the memories along. And now, question mark, there may be no road south of Panama, but the journey goes on. I have decided to try crossing the Darien Gap by land. It's a challenge that merits a try. At any rate, it seems a good time. It's been an unusually dry year, and we are at the end of the dry season. Swamps and insects may be at an all-time low, and the Colombian gorillas have joined the political zircus for now. In the worst case, I may have to backtrack and go by boat to Colombia along the Blast Islands. With that said, there is another continent just at the doorstep. Best wishes, Carlos. It was really nice that I got this letter from Carlos and just got to hear that the adventure and spirit with him is still high. And just that nice story of having some random juice peddler in Iran go into a bicycle shop, buy this him a, buy him a t-shirt, give it to him, walk out without saying a word, and have just that intimate exchange with a stranger be so profound. And then to also hear that he's going to challenge himself by going through the Darien Gap. Now, if any of you out there don't know what the Darien Gap is, the Darien Gap is a small strip of land that separates Panama and Colombia. And it is occupied by the guerrilla groups of Colombia on the Colombian side. And many would say a band of misfits on the Panamanian side, people who are willing to live and take the risk there or who were just brought up there and don't know any different because the amount of cocaine that comes up through there is tremendous. 
and the amount of characters that reside there, they say, are also quite interesting. So we wish you the best, Carlos. Looking forward to getting the next letter from you. And good luck through the Darien Gap. And now, back to the show. So I left you all with sitting on the Nepalese border, coming from China, with the beautiful monk, the beautiful Lama, who so joyfully and openly shared our experience through the Himalayas for three days, and then took us to the border and helped us cross, and then we said our goodbyes. And John and I were left sitting, waiting for a bus in a small border town up in the mountains in one of the most beautiful border towns I've ever been to. And I highly recommend anybody who ever has a chance to go to Nepal because it literally is what you could imagine Shangri-La to be. It is very lush, very green, very tropical with these grimacing icy peaks surrounding it. And you could be sitting in your board shorts in a lake, soaking up the sun, staring at the contrast of these tropical, dense, jungly hills with these peaks that tower over it. And you can imagine those old adventurers hiking through the ice for weeks and months to come across the last peak and look down and see this oasis of beauty that is awe-inspiring and can take your breath away. And we sat there for many hours waiting for a bus that was never going to come. We were trying to get to Kathmandu. If you recall, Lily, one of the Swedish girls we had met when we were hitchhiking hiking through Sweden, had said she'd be in Nepal, her birthplace, trying to reconnect with some of the people that she had remembered growing up there with. And if we happened to come through, we should look her up. And so while sitting waiting for the bus, we got wind that there was a landslide about 17 kilometers down the road. And it was early in the morning. It was about 9 in the morning. And John and I in the way we are and the adventures that we like to have decided that we might as well strike out and start walking it's a beautiful day we had all day to get to some place and we didn't really have anywhere we needed to be so we just started walking and then sure enough about five kilometers down the road out of nowhere came a bus and it picked us up and it was full of people and there wasn't a spot on there for us so we had to climb onto the ladders on the back and just hang on. And one would think this would be exciting and fun and a great adventure, which it was. However, it turned out that after about 10 minutes, it wasn't that fun anymore. With the weight of our backpacks, our arms started to really burn. With the speed the van was going on this very bumpy dirt road, constantly bucking us off this really big bus, I started feeling like this wasn't really safe and with and at any moment I was going to get bucked off the back of this bus and to which one of the Nepalese sitting on the roof noticed my my pain and offered to take my backpack for me to relieve me with some of the weight there wasn't really anywhere I could sit next to him but he was kind enough to help me with my backpack and hold it while I just held on and it was like this for another 15 or 20 minutes to which I finally said I can't do this much more I had at this point like looped my arm up under the the ladder of the, the bus and was thinking to myself, this goes on any farther, I'm going to have to jump off. And then all of a sudden the bus stopped and we had come to the landslide. 
and there was buses on one side of the landslide and then buses on the other. So John just walked across the landslide with our backpacks. We got another bus and we were on our way to Kathmandu. This time there was plenty of room on the roof of the bus. There wasn't any room on the inside of the bus, but we got to spend the next five hours sitting on top of a bus whipping through the mountains of Nepal down towards Kathmandu in just this most beautiful state of joy and just feeling so good with the warm wind in our face and him and I just conversing about the adventures that we had up until then. It was a really, really memorable experience. And then getting into Kathmandu, we went to the internet cafe and found out where Lily was staying. We surprised her. And then a new chapter had opened up in our adventure. Lily had been in Nepal a few weeks and really found that she hadn't connected with it in the way that she thought she would. So she decided to join our little band of misfits and and head towards Pokhara, which is a lake in the middle of Nepal, to where we spent a few weeks just lounging by the lake and reacquainting ourselves with each other and just enjoying just being in Nepal. And after a few weeks, we decided that it was time to maybe strike off towards India. And we had met a French guy who was explaining his experience in India, who had been there many times. He was a young French man. He was renting a beautiful home in the hills of Nepal outside of Pokhara. And and for those of you who don't know, marijuana grows abundantly everywhere in Nepal. You can literally be walking down the street in Kathmandu and see weed growing out of the side of somebody's garden. So there are a lot of weed smoking enthusiasts who tend to spend a lot of time in Nepal. And this French gentleman was one of them. And he had got himself this little house. He was just renting it, but it had abundant amount of weed growing in the front yard to which he would just make his little lemonade every day and sit in the garden and just pick buds off the plant and get super high. And in talking to him about our, our next adventure and hearing what he felt about India, he said one thing that will always stand out to me, which was no matter who goes to India, no matter how long you stay, you will have to get out at some point. There is nobody who can stay and stay forever. You have to get out. And it stuck out. It was something that I was like, interesting. This is a description that I had never really heard before. You always hear people going there who are seekers. You know, it being such a spiritual place, people are always kind of looking to find themselves. They're trying to find more spirituality. And this gentleman was describing it as an eye-opening experience, but one that would become so overwhelming that it would drive you away at some point. And then getting closer to the border and meeting new people all had similar things to say. They were all retreating from India. They had all been there a certain amount of time. They all said the same thing. It was time for me to get out. I had to leave or I would go crazy. And they were all coming to Nepal for refuge. And for those of you who think Nepalese people and Indian people are the same. They're not at all. Very different people. Very similar in culture, but different sort of characters, personalities-wise. Some might say Nepalese are maybe a little bit more pleasant to be around. Some might prefer Indians. It's very subjective. But they all do say India itself will take its toll on you, and you will have to get out at some point. And so we ventured across the border and got a bus towards Varanasi, which is one of the places that many Indian people go to die, to get burned in the ghats, to get cremated and then dumped into the Ganges 
for spiritual liberation. And crossing the border, getting on the bus, within a few hours we see a mahout walking down the side of the road with a giant elephant, which was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. And then pulling to Varanasi and feeling the intensity of people and the wave of energy flow over me. I instantly knew what everybody had been talking about. India has over a billion people. The cities are overflowing with people. The culture itself is very in your face. The smells, the sights, the sounds. People in general just are always in your space, wanting something from you, wanting to sell you something. It is very, very sensory stimulating. And when we found our little hotel, and at this point, it's because we were a threesome, we were spending approximately, you know, a dollar fifty to two dollars on a private room in a hotel. So that wasn't really breaking the bank. And as I said, we had started a new chapter now. You know, it wasn't just us camping. We had Lily with us and we were a bit protective of her and we did our best to make it as comfortable as we could. But she was also a trooper. She didn't ask us to change our travel habits in any way. She was always down to eat minimally, sleep in odd places and just be very rugged, which was really cool to travel with somebody like that. But I will say that Varanasi was a game changer for me in that I felt like I couldn't escape. I just felt trapped and claustrophobic in this sea of intense stimuli. And the only sanctuary I had was on the roof of the hotel where I could watch all the children playing with their kites and battling each other with their little homemade kites. And some of them would cover their strings in shards of glass to cut their neighboring kite. And it was really cool to watch the games they play and the battles they would have. And I would sit up there for hours and reading and soaking up the sun and writing in my journal and watching the kites just dance to the sky. And then I would, when I gained enough energy and enough guts, I would go down and venture out with Lily and John, sometimes by myself, out into Varanasi and and just experience it for what it was because it was intense, super, super intense, sometimes incredibly annoying, sometimes incredibly, most of the time overwhelming, but it was a good introduction. It was a trial by fire. And to give you a sense of like stories I've heard of other people's experiences in the past, the most extreme one I've ever heard was when I was in Australia and a girl that I met was explaining that her and her boyfriend had been dreaming of going to India for a year or so. And they had bought their tickets and they had their whole adventure planned. And when they landed in Delhi, they got off the plane and into the airport. And just upon leaving the airport, the boyfriend had a full panic attack, was just completely overwhelmed, went back into the airport, was seriously contemplating going home on the next flight. His girlfriend convinced him to go with her to the, the hotel that they had pre-booked. Upon getting there, he realized that this was impossible. He could not sustain travel in this kind of chaos. He was overwhelmed by anxiety. He just couldn't wrap his head around traveling in this type of country, to which he got a cab back to the airport the next day and flew back to Australia. And that's an extreme example, but that does give people a sense of like the overwhelm that some people can feel 
in this type of environment. It is so intense. And in past episodes, I always touch upon India with those who have traveled there. And everyone has their own sort of insight into how India affected them. And all I can say for myself is that India is beautiful in so many ways, so many ways that you would never expect to find beauty, you know, ways in which you see people that you could perceive as suffering more than anybody you've ever seen suffer before. Yet the beauty lies in just the simple gestures of kindness where they offer you a free meal or they share something they have with you or they're willing to go out of their way to help you. And like Carlos Papelka experienced Iran, that happened to me, John and Lily in India as well. And, you know, Carlos had an unfortunate experience with being kidnapped by that um, splinter cell of the mouse up in the Himalayas. But, you know, anybody can be unlucky and anything can happen at any time, whether you're in America, in Iran or in India. So my experience in India was such that it was full of sights, sounds, smells and stimuli that are unforgettable and left such a lasting impression on me that even after the three months of being there to where I was literally going on the third month saying, I can't do this anymore. I need to get out of here. But then staying one more month to almost my breaking point and saying, if I ever come back, it won't be for 10 years at least to now being 2018, having very seriously considered going back in the near future and wanting to go back, wanting to kind of get that thrill again, that, that hit of adrenaline that I so remember. And those negative feelings that I had, those overwhelming feelings that I had in 2003 have worn off. And all I remember is the beautiful things, which I'd like to touch upon now. The way we traveled all over India was second class sleeper. So you get a butt, you get a train ticket and you sleep in a compartment with other people and your, your bunks fold out of the wall. So in the daytime, we're all sitting on the bench down below, which at night turns into a bed. And then there's one or two beds above that even. So it's, sometimes it's three, three to six. It's usually six bunks in a second class sleeper and it's packed full of people. And there's so many people selling things on the trains which is awesome because you can always have the most amazing little snacks for nothing. And it was fun to watch even the Indians getting ripped off by some of these guys where they would come in with these really beautiful um, dried pineapple slices, all packaged nice and neat. And you'd see them like bargaining for the price. And then the guy would agree upon a price and he would pay and he would put the the package of pineapple slices behind him and, and continue to talk to his friend while the the seller of the pineapple slices would secretly go behind his back and take the pineapple slices back and move on to the next compartment. And the gentleman wouldn't notice for, you know, three to five minutes and then realize that the guy had stolen him back and then run after him and try to get him back, which the one time I did see this happen, he got him back. The other thing I noticed is that when they walk up and down the train compartments they're selling chai tea and coffee and they have this very interesting tone in which they're saying chai guppy chai chai guppy and they're trying to say coffee obviously and one thing that really stood out to me in the, the other places that i've been in the world is that everybody uses the same tone when you go throughout your day 
saying the same thing over and over again. In order to save your voice, you have to use this specific tone. So whether you're in India, China, Mexico, Nicaragua, where I'm at, it sounds the exact same because it's the same tone. It's in a different language, but it's the same tone because these voices, they have to save because this is their livelihood. And so it's all the same tone. And I've never really found out if my theory is true, but it is something I observed and I've talked to other people about, and they would all agree that, yes, I, I could be onto something that it is the same tone. And so as we zigzagged our way via train all over India, we found ourselves in different landscapes. You know, going to the beach on, on the East Coast was one of our first stops. And I forget the name of the little village, but I hadn't seen the ocean in six months. And it was the most overwhelming, amazing experience. We got in late one night and we just wandered to the sand and me, Lily and John just sat on the sand for three hours with the, the ocean wind blowing on our faces in complete silence, just absorbing that ocean energy. And we had already found a place to stay. So we put our backpacks down and we wandered back and fell asleep that night, woke up to the ocean and John and I went for a run as we did just to explore the little places that we were in. It was always nice to jog around. You could cover a lot of ground and get some exercise. And upon venturing out, we went down the coast on the main dirt road, and then we cut out through this little village, this little thatched roofed village, and onto the sand. And this was early in the morning, about 6 in the morning. The sun had just risen. And we were just kind of jogging along, and we, we noticed this giant pile of shit on the beach. It looked like human shit. And we are like, whoa, jumped over. That was weird. And then we noticed another one, and another one, and another one. And we looked up, and as far as we could see, all the men were sitting on the beach taking shit. And this was tremendously disturbing to us. We had never experienced anything like this before. No one had warned us about this, that the local custom in these rural villages is to wander out and take a dump in the tide line, and the water would wash it away. So at least 300 men were out there taking their morning dump. And then when we were obviously very rattled by this and we ran up back onto the main road and we started going through the like little inland kind of farmlands to which we realized that all the women would shit in the farmlands for their morning dumps. And this was tremendously disturbing as well. Just again, not having been warned that this was a custom and normal that everyone just took defecated publicly every morning and pretty much in general that's just how they did it in more rural villages and then we immediately decided that this was not cleanly and we needed to get out of this village because somehow this might be only in this one village this might be a custom only in this village which we learned that no this is customary all over india and you can even be in cities and you will see a lower caste and I'm not saying class, a lower caste system shitting in the streets of, say, Calcutta, Mumbai, Delhi. It is very common, very normal to see human beings defecating all over the place. Tremendously shocking, disturbing, but culturally normal for them. And not something that I ever really got used to, but I will say I got very good at being able to differentiate by smell human feces versus animal feces. Not something that I want proud of, but is something that's real. 
Um, so as we continue to zig our way, zigzag our way through, we found ourselves in a really, really cool, rustic, in middle India, this little uh, seemingly ancient rock-formed desert oasis called Hampi. And there's these beautiful boulders that have just accumulated and been pushed and piled on top of each other. And within them are a lot of ancient ruins. And again, had a little room to ourselves and did daily explorations through the sort of ancient ruins of this place. And I don't know how far back it went, but at one time, John, at one point, John had found an old sort of aqueduct that seemingly was a place where they had built to capture water. And we decided that we'd go swim in it. And there were all these little fish nibbling at our toes. It's in the middle of the desert. It had very obviously been built long ago. And we swam there all day and had these little fish clean our, clean our skin, which was really cool. And at one point had gotten our, our normal meals of, uh, chapatis and fresh cucumber and tomato, which we'd make these little like tacos out of. And we had the monkeys steal all of our food it was tremendously discouraging considering we were on such a tight budget. But again, another fun experience that you can only really have in India because because it's just such an intense place. Even when you find yourself in the most relaxed environment, you still have somebody or something making it maybe a little bit stressful. And then we made our way out to the coast and we got to the west coast where a lot of Westerners like to go, a little place called Goa, where a lot of people go to party, these trance parties that everybody loves. But we found ourselves in the northernmost village in this province of Goa and we, we camped out on the beach for three weeks just by ourselves there's a little freshwater stream that we were able to get fresh water out of and although the the town was you know less than a kilometer away where we could go in and get supplies if we wanted to i always marvel at the fact that i never got bored i mean we literally sat we had a little camping spot under this weird little rock ledge and it was just the three of us and we sat there for three weeks just laying in the sand having conversation swimming watching the sunrise, watching the sunset. I mean, we were up when the sun rose and we were fast asleep when the sun set. And it was just really felt like I was in tune with the world and the cycles of the day for the first time in my whole life. And then we kept moving south and we made our way to Chennai. And we had met this, we had met this interesting German guy named Sebastian, who was going out to the Andaman Islands, which we hadn't really known much about or done much research on. But he said it was one of the best places to go diving, which is why he was going out there. And so we ventured out there with him. And now this is another interesting point of trying to get things done in India, where I went and bought our boat tickets for us. It was a five-day boat ride out to the Andamans. And I spent all morning trying to find the place where you'd buy the tickets. And then once I was in line, I was about 20 people from the head of the line thinking that, you know, this probably wouldn't take more than an hour or two. I mean, I was, I was schooled enough that I knew it was going to take longer than it should, but I wasn't ready for the fact that it was going to take five hours. You know, I was 30 people from the front and when they opened that window, that 30 turned into almost seemingly 300 all pushing and shoving and trying to fight their way to the front to get their ticket on this, on this boat. And I was just overwhelmed, frustrated, freaking out at one point, trying to get 
these tickets for us and it took me five hours. And I was just, I couldn't even, I couldn't even have prepared myself for that overwhelm, that just unexplainable frustration that I had with the culture and the way things were done. But again, a good learning lesson, which was you couldn't, I couldn't have done anything about it. So I might as well just relaxed and gone with the flow. But, but so we made our way to the Animans, which was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been on earth. It has indigenous people still living out there. Uh, when we had gone out there, they still were relatively untouched by civilization. Um, I got to actually see some of them by sheer chance walking through the jungle. They were, I believe, called the Jawarwan people, and they wear red. They wear red loincloths. And I was on a bus. I was horribly sick. I had gotten Giardia. We had been camping out on this rural island for a month, drinking out of this well. And I had gotten Giardia and had to make my way back to Port Blair to get treatment. And, of course... I hiked back across the island to get the only boat that took you back to Port Blair, which wasn't running. And so as I was pissing, shitting, puking my brains out every 20 steps on the hour walk across the island, I got there and realized there wasn't any other option but to take this small little like ponga a short distance to the island I was trying to get to, but at the north end. And once I got to the north end, it was a six-hour bus ride all the way back to Port Blair. And hands down the most uncomfortable bus ride I've ever been on in my whole life. And I don't know how I made it without shitting myself, but I did. And got treatment. And then John and Lily kind of made their way back and met me. And we headed to Calcutta. And in Calcutta, we spent Christmas at the Salvation Army. And really liked Calcutta. I mean, for some reason, it was cold and kind of Christmassy. And I really felt like... I was in, I don't want to say more civilized of a place, but more westernized because of the colonialism of its time. I felt like I was in a place that I, I was connecting with rather than being constantly struck by a culture that I didn't really quite fully understand and wasn't connecting with. And so after spending Christmas there and having come to the end of our visas, it was time to go, and everybody said that the best way to, to decompress from India was to go to Thailand. Because in Thailand, they always said all you had to do was push a button, and everything kind of took care of itself. And so we managed to find some cheap flights to Thailand, and we were off to Thailand. And we landed, and sure enough, they were right. Thailand was a breeze. Thailand was just like they explained it. All you have to do is literally push a button, which was going to a, a travel agent, which is abundant everywhere you go, tell them where you want to go. And it's equally as cheap as trying to navigate getting there by the local transit systems. And it is, it's just, they take you by the hand. They say, stand here, wait for this bus. Then you get off that bus. They take you by the hand, tell you to wait here for that bus. And in no time at all, you can be in some of the most beautiful islands or beaches in Thailand and just completely decompress, which Although we did for a few nights, we were off to Indonesia, which we had talked about trying to get some waves, John and I, and the closest place we could get to was this little island off the coast of Sumatra called Nias. So we made our way down through Georgetown, Malaysia, 
where we spent a few nights on the streets, me, John, and Lily. And then we made our way across by ferry and across the mainland to Sebulga, where we then where we then did something that we had done a few times. And and Lily was raised Catholic, so she was very anxious when we were in India, and particularly Calcutta, to go to where Mother Teresa had done all of her work. And so John and I accompanied her one morning. This was, I think, uh, Christmas morning. And that was a really cool, interesting experience. Although I'm not very religious, it was interesting to be amongst people who had a lot of faith and sitting there in Mother Teresa's home where she healed all these sick people. You could really feel this powerful energy of faith and hope and Lily being Catholic and, and religious uh, really exposed me and John to that side of things. So as we were traveling throughout our time with Lily, whenever we had the opportunity to approach a church and ask for shelter, it wasn't something that John ever felt guilty about because Lily was somebody of faith and, and she was kind of representing the whole group at this point. So we were quite fortunate in sleeping in, in different churches around the world that would let us, you know, give us sometimes just a little room to lay our mats down in, sometimes even gave us a bed. But upon arriving in Sebulga, um, India, Indonesia is predominantly Muslim. We went to the nearest Christian church and, and Lily asked normally how she and her friends might be able to find shelter and if anybody would be willing to take us in. And there was this really nice family who volunteered. And they took us in for a week and they brought us home. They were living in this very small little house on stilts over the water. And they had a pig running around on this makeshift little second level under the house. And we really got to see how the locals lived in this small little village of Sebulga before we got our ferry over to Nias. And once we finally left them and thanked them for their hospitality, we got to Nias and we made our way out to one of these world famous waves that was discovered in the 70s in Lagundry Bay. And it wasn't the, really the best season for it, but John and I got boards and we decided to you know stay for a little while trying to get a few waves. And after a while, we kind of realized this place was unusual. We had heard some rumors about it, but we didn't really ever want to judge a place on just rumors. We always kind of wanted to feel it out for ourselves. And after you know the first few days, we kind of realized that there, some of the rumors were true. One of the rumors was that if you stayed in one of the local Losmans, that you'd have to eat the food that the locals made you. You had to pay them to make you food. It was kind of a mandatory thing. You weren't allowed to go grocery shopping and make your own food. Like if you stayed at a Losman of the locals, you'd like a little room in like a little, like not even a hotel. It's just like a little house that they rent out rooms in. You have to eat that local family's food. You're not allowed to eat at restaurants. You're not allowed to eat at other people's losmans. You have to eat this food. And this was disturbing to John and I since we had constantly throughout the whole adventure been making our own food and we were on a budget. And we weren't interested in paying that extra little fee to have this family make us food. And so this created a huge sort of rift with the family that we were staying with and they kicked us out they said if you're not going to eat our food then you're not welcome to stay here so we found a another little losman that was willing to let us stay without eating their food which was nice 
And so me, John and Lily kind of posted up there for a few weeks and I don't want this whole episode to sound like I'm being negative, but this was kind of the crescendo, if you will, of the whole adventure where I was just kind of my breaking point, the point in which I couldn't go any farther. It was just emotionally, I was drained. I was done. I was tired of dealing with certain aspects of the road that I just didn't want to deal with anymore. And this little island kind of broke me. And we had just come to a point where we're on this little island and the locals that we had encountered, although there was one little young 15-year-old who was a saint, who was kind of our savior. He spoke decent English and he articulated that he wanted to be in tourism. And the island that we were on, Nias, was interested in tourism but wasn't interested in ty- like giving the type of services to the tourist that would keep them coming back and that he was trying to change that. And so he really went out of his way and made an effort to help us, you know, get the fruit and vegetables at a fair price and negotiate with the fishermen to get a fair price for the fish. And I observed him getting scolded by the local people and saying, why are you helping these tourists? Why aren't we, why aren't you helping us rip them off and getting exponentially more money out of them? And he was always transparent and saying like, this is what they, they're saying to me. This is what I don't want this. I want people to come here and have a good experience. And I'll be totally honest with you. That whole experience on the side, we got stuck out there for a month after the first week, I wanted to bail. Like there was some bad vibes going down after we had that experience with the local Losman owner kicking us out because we wouldn't eat his food to having a woman, uh, a, a Western American woman almost get raped to a few local people taking out a sea turtle and trying to extort money from these other Swedish tourists saying that unless the Swedish tourists paid them, they were going to kill the sea turtle right in front of them to violence, to just, more negative attention pointed to myself and the people that I was surrounded by that I just didn't want to deal with. I mean, it was just not something I could deal with anymore. I was super skinny. John and I had lost 30 pounds each. We hadn't really been eating much the whole year. You know, we were eating a salad a day at one point, which was a combination of cucumber, tomatoes, onions, garlic, carrot, if we could find it. And just, I was done. I told John and Lily, like, I couldn't do this anymore. If we ever got off this island, I was going to go back to Thailand and spend the remaining three weeks of my adventure in Thailand. And so once we finally got off the island after a month, I said my goodbyes to John and Lily. And I made my way back to Thailand and spent the next three weeks laying on the beach, reminiscing in my brain over the last year I'd spent on the road and I forget the exact date, but it was in February. I flew home on my one year anniversary of being home or leaving home, which was a very good feeling of accomplishment. You know, I had set that intention. I had set that goal that I really wanted to be away for a year. I left America thinking that that year would be filled with soccer, but it had taken a turn And I just wanted to really complete the goal of being gone for years. So luckily enough, I was 
was grateful to have a friend who was willing to do that adventure with me. And we did it. We, or I did it. He stayed. John stayed for an extra two years. He got a job in Thailand. Then he rode his bike all over Asia. And by that, you know, after nine months of being back in California, made my way to Nicaragua. And the rest, as they say, is history. But it was definitely a life-changing experience and one that has kept me driving and fighting for that lifestyle where my ultimate goal would be to continue to travel around the world, you know, staying in Airbnbs if I could afford it and making money online and just getting to enjoy, observe, experience all the various cultures around the world that I haven't yet. That's really what I'm striving for. So thank you for listening to my one-year adventure. I hope you've enjoyed the last three episodes on me. You know, the future episodes will be based around the misfits and rejects theme of, you know, travelers, entrepreneurs, expats, adventurers, and the stories that they have that are going to continue to inspire me to keep going. And I hope they inspire you. So until then, thank you again for listening. Best wishes. And I'll see you in episode 73. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.